0: again to the perimeter church podcast have you ever been involved in a come to Jesus meeting usually there's an ultimatum of some kind whether from a loved one or an authority figure A come to Jesus meeting with the actual Jesus is a different experience teaching team member Jeff Norris continues the series a glorious grace with this message entitled the throne of grace which covers Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 to 16 For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: We are continuing a series called A Glorious Grace. We've been in this series for a while now, but we've been doing some sub-series with it. And uh, we just finished seven weeks of uh, leading up to the All In campaign uh, giving like we did last week that was called Generosity and Grace. And next week, Randy will start a new sub-series called The Doctrines of Grace that will take us up through mid-December. And, uh, but today I'm doing something that is in some ways a standalone, but it's still centered on grace, and it's called The Throne of Grace. And let me give you a little story that kind of orients us. By the way, if you want to turn to Hebrews 4, that's where we're going to be. As you do that, I'll, I'll tell you a little something about... Um, One of the greatest days of my life where I almost blew it. It was probably sometime in January of 2001. I was going to ask Rachel to be my wife in February of 2001. That was my plan. And the only only thing that was going to keep that from happening is if I didn't make it in time to ask her father for his blessing. Now, Rachel and I had dated for for three years, I knew her father well. Uh, Dexter Wood, he and his wife Martha, longtime members here at Perimeter. And I, I knew Dexter to be a, a gracious man, a godly man. But I also knew him to be the legendary high school football coach that he, that he is. He was a couple years ago in, inducted into the Georgia High School Sports Hall of Fame. And, and part of his success in coaching is that he doesn't necessarily mean to be, but he can be intimidating He's stoic, he's stern, and I was terrified. So I had not figured out a way to get over to Atlanta from Tuscaloosa where Rachel and I were in our senior year in Alabama. And I couldn't figure out how to get over here without her knowing it. And so long story short, she knew why I was here and he knew why I was here. But for whatever reason, fear gripped me, hesitancy in my spirit overcame me, and here we are sitting in the living room. I'm on a love seat. He's on the couch. We're about 10 feet apart, and I cannot say the words. And all these things are rolling through my head of what to say, and I keep dismissing them quickly. Oh, well, if you say that, he's going to think you're crazy, and that's stupid. Don't, don't say that. That's, that's not a, how you lead into to asking for his blessing. And eventually, he was so gracious, and he said, so, Jeff, Tell me why you 're here. <laughs> and I said, "Ah, oh, thank you, Lord." And I said, "Well, funny that you mention it. Um, you know here's, here's the point. Well, let me say this. I, I had a note here to i 'm going to throw my dad under the bus too, so I get it honestly. he's probably going to listen to this later and go, "What come on, man, don 't throw me there." So my dad, but way back, my, my mom and dad had been married, I think forty four years and way back in the day when he was asking her father for his blessing, he drove a little over an hour to her parents' house and he sat in the living room with my grandfather for uh, an hour and a half and then went home, never brought it up. (laughs) And then he was so mad at himself that he did that, that once he got back to his house, he picked up the phone and called him and said, by the way, the reason I came was I wanted to ask for your blessing and I was too scared. And so he said, that's fine. But he did it over the phone and he's been embarrassed ever since. And so I I get it, honestly, Dad, thanks for that. Um, Here's the point. In the presence of authority, in the presence of someone that we see is maybe greater than us, in the presence of someone who we might perceive as intimidating, fear grips us. Hesitancy takes over. We second-guess ourselves. We doubt. We, We waver. I'll tell you one more quick antidote. A couple years ago, uh, before I came, a few years ago before I came here to be on staff at Perimeter, I was leading uh, campus ministry at the University of Alabama. And we had a number of football players involved with our ministry. And one player in particular, I had been at uh, the, um, the football complex doing a study with him and some of his uh, uh, teammates. And, and we had finished the study and it came up in conversation that I had never met Coach Saban. And so uh, JK, who was the guy that I had been ministering to and pouring into and discipling he says well let's go see if he's here I'd love for you to meet him and immediately I fear just took over oh my goodness what would I say I don't know I mean I want to meet him but I don't what's what, what what would I ever say to the man but here's the thing is I had I had actually daydreamed about what I would say to coach Saban if I ever got to see him and I had these grandiose things of if I even get five minutes with him I'm going to share the gospel I'm going to just I'm just going to go for it well the moment was coming near and I was terrified now we get up to where his office is, and his assistant's desk is there in front of his office. And we ask if he's there, and she says, no, he's actually out right now. And immediately I was like, oh, thank you, Lord.
0: <sighs>
1: and then I was like, why am I so relieved? I've always dreamed about meeting this guy and what I would say to him. But fear took over and hesitancy took over. What we're going to see in this passage in Hebrews chapter 4 is we're going to see something that tells us that through Jesus because of Jesus, if your faith is in him, that you can actually come before, you and I can actually come before the God of the universe, the one who spoke creation into being, the most powerful, awe-inspiring, wonder-filled, majestic being we could ever dream of laying our eyes on. And we can come into his presence and not have to be fearful. And according to this passage, we can actually draw near to to, to God with confidence and our insecurity and our hesitancy becomes assurance and it's really mind-blowing and it sounds outrageous but it's true listen to the text Hebrews 4 12 through 16 says this for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word that tells us, even here in this passage, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing between both soul and spirit, joint and marrow that it discerns the intention of our hearts, and that it lays us bare before you, exposing us. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. Would you do with it this morning what you intend to do, to convict us where we need to be convicted, to encourage us where we need to be encouraged, to shape us and to mold us more into the image of your Son. And would you do it all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things to give you this morning from this text. The first one is this. I talked about confidence, drawing near to God with confidence. Hear this. Our confidence to approach God begins with an embrace of our condition. It begins with an embrace of our condition. I, I just prayed through verses 12 and 13, but let me read them one more time. And listen to what is said about what the word of God does to us in exposing us for who we are. It says this, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So if we're going to approach God with confidence, the first thing that has to happen is we have to be willing to agree with and embrace what's true of us apart from Christ. And the Scriptures, the Word of God is what helps us see what's true of us. What this passage is telling us is that God's Word is like an MRI. It shows us and exposes to us what's going on on the inside. The Word of God examines us, and reveals to us so that we can see, wow, there's a lot of brokenness in there. We know intuitively that, that there's something not right with the way we function. That there's, there's a brokenness to our existence. And some of the language here in, this, in these two verses of 12 and 13 take us back to the language of, of Genesis 3. When sin came into the world. And you had Adam and Eve who chose their glory over the glory of God. And when they partook of the fruit, sin came in. And what was the first thing that happened? The very first thing that happened immediately is that they were aware of their nakedness and they were ashamed. And not only were they ashamed, but their shame drove them to fear and hiding. And what this is saying is that the Word of God, one of the works of the Word of God, of how it operates in our lives and our hearts, is it does that very thing. It lays us bare before God and exposes us. I would never go in, let's say I'm sick, there's something wrong with me, maybe it's cancer, there's tumors in my body, and I I go in for an MRI and it reveals what's really going on in there. And the doctor gives me the diagnosis and he says, Jeff, I'm sorry to say there's cancer in your body. My response to that would never be logically or rationally to ever be, oh, well, that's okay. I'm all right. I mean, I can probably pull it together and you know, try harder and, and, and be better in terms of health and this will probably go away. My response to a diagnosis that, like that would be simply to cry out, To the doctor in front of me and say, doctor, is there anything that you can do to make this better? And as a believer, I would also cry out vertically and say, God, you're the great physician. Is there anything you can do? Would you heal me? The response to being exposed and laid bare before God is not one of, well, I can pull it together. As the scriptures show us more and more of our condition, of our nature, the wrong response is to go, you know what? It's really really not that bad. Yet for many of us, we try to hold ourselves together and we try to manage our sin. Instead of running to the one with confidence who can heal us. In Ephesians it says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. So excuse me for the graphic analogy, but imagine that it's not an MRI. That the spirit of God has literally cut me open. And I'm laid bare before you and you can see the disease inside of me. It would be very foolish for me to then take that, that incision and to try to just pull it back together and say, everything's fine here, nothing to see. If that were the case, I would cry out and I would say, Someone help me. God, help me. And it begs the all important question as we understand that it's Scripture who pierces us, it's, it's, it's Scripture that convicts us it's scripture that shows us our nakedness and our brokenness before the lord that to whom the one that we have to give account it 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 begs the question how are you and i trying to hold it together how are you and i what is it that maybe we're trying to do to dismiss our condition and say it's really not that bad and minimize our need for jesus to heal us to make us whole to do what only he can do to our spirit and to our broken hearts and mending us back together. Secondly, our confidence to approach God is lost when our performance is our platform. And what I mean by performance is our moral performance. The platform that we instinctively and intuitively think that this is the right response to our condition. When we see our condition, for many of us, The human nature, not many of us, all of us, human nature is to run to my ability to be good and impress God. To make up for my wrongdoing. To try to make things right. I'll put it to you this way. I'll tell it in the way of a story. Uh, Many years ago, before Rachel and I had kids... We were beginning our campus ministry years. We were down at Southern Miss in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. With Two of our dear friends were also doing campus ministry in Jacksonville, Alabama. Not Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville, Alabama. Very different. And they were there doing ministry at Jacksonville State University. And we were on a break. And we went to visit them. And, and Rachel and Bethany, my friend's wife, were out just having some uh, coffee together and going shopping, that kind of thing. And so Seth and I, my, my, my friend, were, were just in his living room hanging out talking And the doorbell rings. Seth goes to the door. I hear a conversation happening. I can't tell exactly what's going on. But within a few minutes, he comes into the room with two guys, two Mormons. He says, Jeff, we have company. I say, okay, great. So we sit down with these two guys and we talk for a really, really long time. And over the course of our conversation, at some point, one of us asked the question, either Seth or I, I can't remember which one, we had been trained in campus ministry world to ask these questions often as as kind of how to diagnose the heart. What are people trusting in? And and, uh, they're commonly called the Kennedy questions. Many of you have heard of these. If you haven't, they're they're named after a guy named James Kennedy, who was a pastor down in Fort Lauderdale for many years. And he came up with with these questions. And so one of us asked the question, we said, guys, Let's say something crazy happens. Maybe a car comes crashing through the wall right now and, and just takes all four of us out. And the next thing we know, we're standing before God. And he, he asked the question, why should I let you into heaven? How do you answer that? And both of these men answered, young men answered very similarly. They both said, well, I've been faithful. I've tried to be good. I've tried to be uh, one who does what you have commanded me to do. I've treated people the way that you would want me to treat them and, and I hope it's been enough, basically. And Seth, or one of us answered and said, okay, based on that answer, how sure of you on a scale of one to 10, 10 being absolutely sure, 100%, zero being no chance, how sure of you that he let you in? And both of these young men answered Seven. And Seth responded, and he said, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but, but help me understand something. You have, you have left your life to go on a two-year mission because you are absolutely convinced that what you're taking door to door is the best news that you could give someone, right? And they said, yeah, that's right. He said, you want me to give up the way that I believe about God, to embrace what you believe about God, and you would like for me to follow him the way that you're presenting to me, correct? And he said, yes, correct. And he said, again, I don't mean to offend you guys, but I just want to tell you that what you're bringing to my house is the worst news I could imagine. You're, You're telling me that you want me to devote my way of belief to your way of belief, and at the end of it all, I might get in. 70% chance at best. That's terrible news. Do you mind if I share with you what good news is? And he went into the gospel and he talked to them about the work of Jesus and how it's not based on our performance. If it's based on my performance, man, I'm having a great day if it's 70%. I'm feeling really good about myself. I mean, most days I'm at like a one or two at best, right? It was like, man, I can't get anything right. But if it's based on the work of a perfect substitute in my place, if it's based on the work of, as this passage says, that we'll read again in a minute, that says that that we have a high priest who went before us who who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. That if it's based on him, then I can stand before God with confidence and know without a doubt, 100%, that I'm in I remember these guys saying, well, that's incredibly arrogant for you to have that much confidence. And said, now listen, hold on. If it were based on me, absolutely, that is, you could not get more arrogant. That would mean, I think, so much of my ability to perform in such a way that God says, you know what? You've been so good. I'm going to accept you into my presence. But because of sin, that can never be reality. But it's not arrogant at all to say, but on the work of God himself in the flesh, Jesus, the son of God, Performed in my place, now I have a platform. Now I can stand before God and not offer up my goodness or my self-worth, but the, the work of another and say, it's Jesus. Why should you let me into heaven? <laughs> you shouldn't. But Jesus, only because of Jesus should I ever have a place in your presence, God. How do we know if we're basing it on performance? How how do we know that I'm I'm moving towards performance rather than the work of Christ in my place? Here's one way. There's many ways, but here's one to to give to you this morning. If you find yourself, after having blown it, you've, you've absolutely blown it with some type of sin. You've just unleashed on your spouse just an array of attacks and words that as soon as they come out, you immediately feel your heart sink and you go, what have I done? Maybe you've done that with one of your kids. You've said something to your kid that you know has, has hurt them deeply. Maybe it's a coworker or a, or a, a boss that you have treated or an employee you've treated in a way that immediately upon doing that, you go, wow, this is I've just totally blown it. Maybe, maybe it's you've looked at something on a computer screen or on a phone that you know immediately this is not pleasing to the Lord. Maybe it's a, a flirty conversation that you've had with a coworker at work and upon leaving that conversation, you just go, man, what am I doing? Upon blowing it, if your response is, in, is to enter into a season... A length of time, whether it be a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, however long, where you feel like it's necessary to live in self-condemnation and self-hatred and self-loathing and to do that for a period of time before you feel worthy to come to God, then you're basing it on your performance. You're basing your ability, I'm basing my ability on my, how much can I make myself feel forgivable, worthy of God's forgiveness before I come to him confident before his presence. We want to hate ourselves for a little while before we feel like we can come into his presence. But here's the reality of this passage. Here's the reality of the gospel. Don't miss this. As soon as you put that phone down after looking at that or closed the computer or had that inappropriate conversation or said those words that you wish you could take back, as soon as you said that, As soon as you did that, because of the work of Christ in your place, you can go right then into the presence of God with confidence to say, God, I'm sorry. I've blown it. You know I've blown it. Your word exposes me. You know the intentions of my heart. You know everything about me. I cannot hide from you. And so I'm not going to beat myself up for a week or two weeks before I come to you and sit in your grace. I'm going to come right now. It doesn't mean I'm not... Sad over my sin. It just means I know the grace of my Father. And I come to Him immediately on the heels of blowing it. And I say, God, change me. I'm still a work in progress. Do your work in me. As you can see, I'm still needing you to do your work. For many of us, myself included, We want to hate ourselves for a season of time before we come with confidence. And that's not what the scriptures tell us. Thirdly, our confidence to approach God is sure when Christ is our standing. Let me read verses 14 to 16 one more time. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let me explain a couple of terms that are in this passage. The first and most important is high priest. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of language about priests, Priests were men who were set apart by God, who were descendants of Levi. And they were the ones that were to work and operate in the temple or the tabernacle. And what their job was, is their job was to be the mediator, the go-between, the one who stands in the gap between God and his people. Between holy and sinful and unholy. And the system that God set up, because God has always been a God of grace. Always. Always. He's not just a New Testament God of grace, he's always been a God of grace. And instead of pouring out his wrath, the just wrath of God on sin, instead of pouring that out on his people, he set up a system of substitution, of sacrifice, to where God's people upon sinning in the Old Testament were able to bring a substitute, an animal of some sort that would be killed in the place of them. They would experience the death of sin in their place. And so the priest's job was to receive this sacrifice, this bull, this lamb, this this dove, this pigeon, whatever it may be, and to receive this and to slit the throat of this animal and pour out the blood on the altar. Now, God is not a bloodthirsty God. God is not a God that says, I love death. In fact, he hates it. But God is a God who loves a sacrificial substitute so that his people can be forgiven. And so the priest was the one who did that. But the high priest was, as it says, the highest of priests, the one set apart to do something incredibly special one day a year. One day a year on the Day of Atonement, after a week-long purification process, the high priest, this one man, was able to enter into the Holy of Holies. This is the room in the middle of the temple, in the depth of the temple, that, would, that housed the Ark of the Covenant, the Spirit of God, the presence of God. And if anyone ever went into that room, they died immediately because holiness and sin cannot be together. But one day a year, God granted the high priest the opportunity to come into the Holy of Holies and to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant to signify forgiveness for the high priest's sins and for the sins of Israel. He was the one who could go into the presence of God and make atonement so that God's people could be forgiven. Now, having understood that, we see this language. Let us therefore, or sorry, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus is the once and final and complete and pure and perfect high priest. And he didn't just enter into the holy of holies and then come out and then have to do it again and then come out and have to do it again. He came and he made sacrifice as the lamb of God who would spill his blood. And then he didn't just enter into the presence of God, he went through the heavens and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, sitting down signifying that it's finished, there's no more need for blood sacrifice because once and for all, the perfect lamb has been slain. Jesus is our great high priest, has passed through the heavens, he has sat down at the right hand of the Father and he has stood in the gap for us why so that verse 16 that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace I love that phrase throne of grace you get this picture of throne and for me I think about all the movie scenes that I've seen over the years where there's a king on the throne and people are entering into the presence of the king with much trepidation and fear and hesitation like we talked about at the beginning. But what we see here is that God has always sat upon a throne of grace. And we, as his people, can draw near. A few years ago, I developed this thing called a vocal cord granuloma. Now, that's a fancy way of saying that it was a benign uh, lesion that developed on one of my vocal cords. And you develop these things by overuse of the voice. I I like to talk and it did not pay off. And the only way to get rid of these is you uh, you have to not talk for a long time. This was hard for me. So I went for three weeks after I figured out what was going on and why I was having the pain that I was having. I went for three weeks, complete silence. After three weeks, not only had it not gone away, but it had gotten bigger. And so my doctor said, you know what, this is one of those where we probably need to go in there and take it out. But after I take it out, you're gonna have to spend another three weeks in complete silence because these things have a tendency to come back. So after surgery, I spent three more weeks in complete silence. Couldn't make any noise, no humming, nothing. It was during this three weeks after surgery that I had taken my children to um, the movie theater to see a movie. We're walking out of the movie. Uh, afterwards and and it's dark in that little hallway that you're trying to go through on the side of the seats to get back out to the main hallway and I accidentally step on the heel of a woman in front of me and it makes her shoe come off a little bit and so she kind of gathers herself and puts her shoe back on and and then she turns around and lets me have it you don't have to walk so close to me it's dark in here can't you back up you'll get out there you know and just I don't remember all of it it was just like whoa hold on now And I can feel the anger rising within me. But I can't say anything. I can't say I'm sorry, which incites her all the more. You're not going to say anything. You're not even going to say you're sorry. I can't believe you. People are unbelievable. And then she storms out in front of me. My kids are like, what is going on? Well, at this point, I'm livid. And so we go out into the lobby, and I notice that this particular woman is hanging around with the group that she was with, and she's not leaving. And I go, here's my chance. And what I'm about to tell you that I did, I am not saying is a good thing. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you should model it in any way. This is, there's a lot of examples that I, I want to give from stage that show you how much I need Jesus. I'll go over to the concession stand area, and I, I make some motions saying, hey, can I have something to, to write with, pen and paper? And so they get me... a a pen and I think they gave me a napkin. And so I go over and I just write down, ma'am, I'm very sorry that I stepped on your heel. And so, you know, whatever I said on that. And then I said, I'd also like for you to know that I had surgery two weeks ago on my throat and I'm unable to speak. So I would appreciate apology from you (laughs) and how you responded to me not understanding the situation. Thank you very much. So I walk over to this woman I tap her on the shoulder, and I stick it right in front of her face. And it's one of those where she sees me, and she gives me this look of, what are you doing here again? And she begins to read it, and she's got this scowl on her face. And I take great delight as I see the scowl go away. And I see her go and reluctantly hand it back to me and say, okay, I'm sorry, and then turn back around. I felt vindicated. I felt righteous. I felt like justice had been served. I walked out of the theater with my chest out, and just pumping my fist inwardly. Yeah. It wasn't long thereafter that God drew my attention to this, to this scripture. And I remembered this in my time with him. He said, this is speaking of Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth his mouth and and I read this this is a prophecy from Isaiah and this is what happened when Jesus went to the cross if there's ever been a person there's only been one and it was him who had the right to stand on the platform of his performance to prop up his morality before God and say God I've never done anything wrong why is this happening to me to say what you people are doing to me is injustice. You don't understand the situation. You don't understand that I'm the son of God. And then, and then on top of that, to mock me while I hang here suffering for you. And you're gonna walk up to me and say, oh, if you're the son of God, then take yourself off the cross and save yourself like you say you can. You king of the Jews. And then when he did speak, when he did finally say something, Luke 23, 34, listen to what he was. It, was. it was a pleading for the forgiveness of those that were doing the very injustice to him. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, this woman lit into me because I stepped on her heel and I could not contain it. I had to put her in her place. And the greatest injustice in the history of the world is being done to the Son of God who has never sinned and yet he is having sin. Thrown onto him as if he had. The sin of the world. And he was silent. He didn't say anything. And you know why? So that you and I can draw near. So that you and me, the very ones who deserved to be on that cross, getting what he got. We don't get it. We don't have The wrath of God on us if our faith is in Jesus. What we get instead is direct access to the God of the universe, the throne of grace, to receive forgiveness and mercy and grace in our time of need. Friends, this is mind blowing. This is heart exploding stuff we understand that our silent, sacrificial Savior did for us the unthinkable. And when we begin to realize, I have this access with confidence, it changes everything. It changes how we live. It changes how we approach God. And we don't become a people who want to perform for God. We become a people because of what he's done for us who want to obey him. It's what the gospel does to us from the inside out. And it all is a result of grace. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you that you did for us what we could not do. No matter how hard we try, we can never be perfect. We are born into sin. And yet, you, Jesus, you came. And you did for us the unthinkable. And Lord, our standing is not upon us and our record before you and our performance, our standing is on Jesus. We proclaim him and him alone, high and exalted and lifted up, as the perfect one, the righteous one. And in his stead, we are declared righteous. And we give you thanks. Father, I pray for those who may be in the room this morning who've never understood these truths of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They've lived their entire life trying to please you with their goodness. Would you, in this very moment, Reveal to them and open their eyes to the beauty of Christ, to stand upon him by faith. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia.